Welcome back, you guys. This is week eight of Our Mothers Knew It, and our first big jump into Jacob's writing. We've had just a taste of Jacob so far, but I think you're going to love this week just because you get to see Jacob really close. You get to hear his testimony, see how he writes and how he interprets scripture, how he gets revelation on the fly and shares it with people. I mean, he's just a really unique voice in the Book of Mormon, and you get a lot of him this week. So we're going to go from chapter 6 through 10 of 2 Nephi, and this is Jacob's seminal sermon. Like, he will first teach us the words of Isaiah. So almost like a Come Follow Me commentary, you know, he's going to take scripture that is already written, and he will help his people understand what it means and how it applies to them. And then you're going to hear him kind of build on the themes that he got from Isaiah. He's going to teach them new revelation that he's receiving that I'm sure he also has learned from Nephi and from Lehi about the nature of Jesus Christ, about this infinite atonement and their invitation to come close. I don't know exactly why he's given this assignment. We know that Nephi calls him to this work. Remember last week he called him to be a high priest and a teacher, and now he's kind of into that calling, and his first big assignment is to offer this sermon. And I don't know what's happening in the hearts of the people. You get some different feel as you read through these guidance from Jacob. Like, he seems to be concerned about them, their holiness level. <laughs> he seems to be concerned about them focusing on the wrong things. Um, I think he also is a little concerned about their feelings of isolation. You can almost hear it. His whole focus is you are a child of the covenant. You know, it's that same message we heard from President Nelson about being a child of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and a child of the covenant. That seems to be Jacob's message as well. He's trying to get into their hearts. This is so much bigger than you think it is. And so he reminds them of who they are and whose they are and why it's worth it to stay. And I just think it's powerful. To me, the biggest thing about all three of those labels, you know, to be a child of God and a child of the covenant and a disciple of Christ, to me, what that means is you have an open invitation to come home. And that's Jacob's message this week, you guys. It's all about reconciling yourself to God through the gift and grace of Jesus Christ. In fact, it helped me to go to the very end of this week's study and read the last little bit of 10 first. This is some of what you're going to find there. So from 23 to 24 of chapter 10, he says this, Therefore, cheer up your hearts. Remember, this is at the end of his sermon, after he's taught them all these things. He says, cheer up your hearts and remember that you are free to act for yourselves, to choose the way of everlasting death or the way of eternal life. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember, after ye are reconciled unto God, that is in and through the grace of Jesus Christ, ye are saved. That's his invitation. Come and be reconciled. So if at this point in your life you are feeling distant in any way, which all of us are, just because we're in this mortal condition, Jacob's words will help you come closer. They'll help you inch closer to the, the goals and the plans that God has in store for you. I just think there's so much to learn. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. It's time to get started. Just like the last several weeks, we're going to do our 7-5-3 teaching approach. I'm going to give you seven key insights, not even necessarily the most important things I read in this week's verses, but things that felt fresh to my eyes, something I hadn't seen before, something I delighted to study. I'm going to share a few of those. And then after that, I'll share five good questions with the hopes that you will have really good conversations with people around you and get curious to get into your own scriptures. Then we'll do a second video of the object lessons. I'll give you three of those just to help you find ways to delight in the scriptures more. For me, there's almost nothing more fun than finding some way to help someone else understand the scriptures. And I think when you do it in a creative, 
cool way. It just brightens your countenance and makes people enjoy it. And then that's my hope. So we're going to do our 753 approach. So I'm going to kick things off with spark number one. So this, come, this came to me right out of the gate in the very beginning of chapter six. And this is about Jacob's motivation. So we know he was assigned by Nephi. You see that in the verses. And then he talks about why he's taking his time. Remember, this is a sermon that spans at least two days. And I don't know how much of the day this spans, but it's a lengthy sermon. And you have to wonder where that's coming from. But I think Jacob tries to answer that for us in his own words in verses two and three of chapter six. This is what he says. Behold, my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, having been called of God and ordained after the manner of his holy order, and having been consecrated by my brother Nephi, unto whom ye look as a king or a protector, and on whom you depend for safety, behold, ye know that I have spoken unto you exceedingly many things. Nevertheless, I speak unto you again, for I am desirous for the welfare of your souls. Yea, mine anxiety is great for you, and ye yourselves know that it has ever been. For I have exhorted you with all diligence, and I have taught you the words of my Father, and I have spoken unto you concerning all things which are written from the creation of the world. I just found myself softened by Jacob's approach. I just think he's so vulnerable. You know, he's saying, the whole reason he's doing this. He has no ulterior motive. There's nothing he's going to get out of it. He's just concerned for their souls. He wants them to succeed and he wants them to come closer to God. And so he's going to do everything in his power that he can. And I think what you see in two actually links to what you read in one, because I think this is one of the beautiful gifts of accepting a calling. You know, in verse one, that he's been called of God. He wasn't called by Nephi, he was called of God. And Nephi issued the calling, and then Nephi set him apart for this work. He's been ordained after this manner. Because remember, he's going to be the high priest at the temple. These are big, weighty responsibilities on Jacob's shoulders. And I don't think he's very old, you guys. I mean, we know it's roughly 40 years since they left Jerusalem, which means... I think Jacob is probably in his 30s, maybe 40s. He's pretty young. I picture him really similar to the way I picture Joseph Smith, actually. <laughs> like he's, he's young to lead this people in this really holy work. But he's been ordained, and he has the Melchizedek priesthood, and he's been consecrated for this work. And so he'll be able to do it. And I think one of the natural extensions of being called and ordained and consecrated for a work is that your heart expands. You know, Jacob, who already had a tender heart and who knows what it's like to be bullied and to be messed with and to feel a little bit isolated and lost, he, he can, Heavenly Father can take those gifts and talents of Jacob, his gift for compassion, and he just expands it. That's why I think he gives this sermon. I think it's the same reason most of us show up for our callings today, because somehow God has stretched the walls of your heart and you have more people in it than you probably ever had before. I only say that from my own personal experience. You know, my calling right now, like I've talked about, is I'm the YSA Institute teacher. So I just teach this one class, one time a week. And you guys, it doesn't matter who walks in that door, because I never know who's going to come and who's not going to come. No matter who walks in that door, my heart expands. I don't want to just know their name. I want to know their background. I want to know what their struggles are. I want to know where their testimony is at and what I can do to help. Like, there is an expansion of my heart that happens every time someone walks in the room. What I think is kind of hard about that for all of us is that means you also feel more aches and pains when you see choices happen. And that's Jacob. It's not so much that I think the people are wicked. Remember, these are the Nephites. So they've already split off from the Lamanites. They're already building a thriving city and living after the manner of happiness. But his heart now is 
increasingly sensitive to their deviations from God's plan for them. And that I think comes with callings too, that you are, you have an expanded ability to love and an expanded sensitivity to what could go wrong. (laughs) And so you have anxiety and you worry. And I just think it's sweet to see that play out in Jacob's calling. I think he, he handles it with such heart and I love it. I think one of the things that really helped me the most is I was thinking about Jacob's words this week. I went to the temple this week to do initiatories. I'm trying to go every other week, so I'm switching between different ordinances. But it was interesting to me as I sat and I listened to those beautiful promises of the initiatory, because I, I realized at the time that Jacob must have had this moment too. You know, we read about in the Old Testament where Aaron and his sons are taken to the door of the tabernacle and then they're washed and they're anointed. Like it's that, you can read all about it in the Old Testament. Jacob must have had one of those experiences, probably with Nephi, where he was set apart for this holy work. And those promises that he received in those sacred ordinances helped him do this. They helped him expand his heart so he could teach truth. It probably helped open his eyes so he could understand the words of Isaiah and then find a way to teach it and make connections to the people he's trying to teach. I just, there was something sweet about thinking about Jacob receiving those promises and then using those as a foundation to teach this beautiful sermon of truth. When I had an initiatory lens on my eyes, as I read his words, new things jumped out. But to me, probably the most powerful of this first spark is just the abundant gifts that God gives to those who are willing to accept callings if you will choose to serve in whatever capacity, whether it be an official capacity or just you see a need and you serve, your heart will expand. It'll make you a little more vulnerable, but it's worth it because you can guide people towards a place where they will find safety and peace. And Jacob seems to get that. And I love the way he shares it. This second spark I call the ache of misunderstanding because we have this rare glimpse It's Isaiah's words taught by Jacob, but he's teaching us about the mind of God and how he feels when the children of Israel speak about being cut off. The children of Israel are complaining about their God forgetting them and leaving them to wander and suffer. And you hear the words of God taught, what he might be thinking or saying, and it's funneled through Isaiah and taught with clarity by Jacob. So it begins around, well, let's let's start with one and two. This is of chapter seven. It says, yea, for thus saith the Lord, have I put thee away or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away? Or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? For behold, your iniquities ye have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, yea, there was none to answer. O house of Israel, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have have I no power to deliver? What I like about this is, if Jacob's people are struggling by feeling isolated, like they feel almost trapped. In fact, later you're going to hear Jacob talk about their settings, almost like being on the Isles of the Sea. So you almost wonder if they feel a bit landlocked and frozen and struggling. And he's trying to help them understand that the scriptures are actually there to teach them. Like the children of Israel felt the same way. Let me show you what the Lord said to them. We are not forgotten. What I like about this is, well, I think it's easy to read these verses and think, This is God kind of angry or frustrated. How dare you accuse me of this? How dare you think this of me? But I just don't read it that way. I think because of my parenting experience, I've had a few situations like this. You probably have too, where your kids 
forget your kindness. <laughs> you know, they, they think you're going to be so angry. They make a dumb choice of some kind. And then by the time you are aware of it, you're like, why didn't you come to me sooner? You know, if you, if you ever had your kids like have a toothache that they didn't bring to you for months and months, and you're like, why didn't you talk to me? We could have fixed this or, you know, like any kind of little mistake or problem that now has spiraled into something much bigger. And for me, when I've had those moments, and I've had a few recently with some of my kids where I just found myself sad that they didn't understand me better, you know, that they thought I would be angry or that they thought my love for them would somehow be adjusted based on their obedience to my rules. <laughs> like I, my love for them surrounds them. It doesn't have anything to do with how well they obey me. Like the blessings I can give them, the, the, the way I can make their life easier and happier. Yes, those are contingent on their obedience, but my love for them is boundless and it doesn't matter what their choices are. And it was with that lens that I found myself reading these words and thinking, this must be so hard. It must be, there must be an ache in these words because he's saying like, don't you know me at all? Remember, I've been with you all this time. Like, I am the God who helped you through the wilderness. I am the God that created this world for you and that made water gush from a rock and manna fall from heaven. Don't you remember who I am? I just think there's this sweet ache. But what I think is so powerful is it doesn't seem to shift into resentment. It never turns into, I gave you a chance and you didn't take it and I'm out because he loves us as a father loves his children. And so he will never be out. He, he just rallies with them and pleads with them. In fact, one of the things I loved about these verses, the spark that hit me was in two, because despite the fact that they rejected him and turned away from his laws and blatantly rebelled against what he asked them to do, he still comes. You know, he says, wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, there was none to answer. To me, this is reassuring because it means no matter how far off the path I am, he will continue to come and he will continue to call. The fact that there was no one to answer doesn't make doesn't mean he's not going to come the next day. In fact, we see that with the children of Israel. He comes the next day and the next day. He wanders with them for 40 years. He helps them in the promised land. He never abandons his people. They've just stepped back. And, and for me, I just loved that spark. Just as a reminder for myself, there's peace in knowing I can never go too far off the path. He will come and he will call. And my job is to answer. I love the way it's phrased in eight. This is Isaiah's call for them to rally. He says, and the Lord is near and he justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near and I will smite him with the strength of my mouth. This is Isaiah saying like, once you're back on the Lord's team, you know, once you're back having him in your corner and appreciate the fact that he's been with you the whole time, then we can go forward. We don't have to be reactionary to our hard circumstances anymore. We can be proactive and we can choose to go forward. Like almost, you almost get this like linking arms kind of visual as you read these verses. I just thought there was power in it. There's this great quote from President Eyring. This is what he said. This is from a 1991 talk, but I loved it. It's in the notes if you want the full link, but it says, if you want to stay close to someone who has been dear to you, but from whom you are separated, you know how to do it. You would find a way to speak to them. You would listen to them and you would discover ways to do things for each other. The more often that happened, the longer it went on, the deeper would be the bond of affection. If time passed without the speaking, the listening and the doing, the bond would weaken. God is perfect and omnipotent and you and I are mortal, <laughs> but he is our father and he loves us and he offers us the same opportunity to draw closer to him as would a loving friend. And if you will do it in much the same way, and you will do it in much the same way, speaking, listening, and doing. I feel like this is President Eyring saying, 
it's just not that hard. You know, if you need to close the gap between you and God, then speak to him, listen to his counsel and do whatever he asks you to do. Do it over and over again to prove your love, your affection, your trust in him and that let that relationship flourish. That closes the gap. Isaiah's pep talk rolls right into chapter eight. This is when he's trying to say like, okay, now once you realize who God really is, who we really have on our side and how constantly he has been here helping us, then we can just surge forward. In those first few verses, you're going to see Jacob teach. Well, he's teaching Isaiah's words, but he talks about looking to that rock from whence you are hewn. You know, those great verses where it's like, he's trying to say, look how far you've come and look who you belong to. No matter how far on the isles of the sea they feel, they are still tethered to that covenant promise of Abraham. No matter what the distance is, that's what applies to us in the latter days as well. It doesn't matter where we live or who we are, we are tethered to those lines of Abraham and those covenant promises can be claimed. So you see him just pulling on them. In fact, you're going to hear a lot of the same kind of phrasing in Isaiah's words that we heard in Lehi's words. It's this invitation to like shake off the dust and awake. So if you look in 2 Nephi 8, this is 12 and 13, and then also 15. It says, I am he, yea, I am he that comforteth you. Behold, who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of man who shall die, and the son of man who shall be made unto like grass? Meaning like, why are you afraid of the people around you? All of those people are limited in their abilities. Infinite God is not limited, but everyone else is. So he's saying like, remember who's on your team. And then he says, and forgettest the Lord thy maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That's who's on your team. That's who you are, the team you are playing for. So shed all of those fears. And then I love 15. But I am the Lord thy God, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is my name. There's two things I love and that sparked for me in that verse. First, I love the idea whose waves roared. I just think we talked a little bit about this back in Isaiah when we were in the Old Testament together, but this idea of thinking about the sound of the sea when it was parted. You can go on the footnotes and see this kind of ties into that Red Sea imagery, but I just had never thought of what that must have sounded like. You know, I've always thought about what it must have felt like to walk on dry ground, but the sounds as you hear the waves parting around you and chaos being held back at bay. Like I can't imagine what that sounded like or if they could feel it in their feet, you know, as they walked across the, the dry ground, could they feel the rumbling of this sea trying to crash back down, but being held back? I just I love it. I also love that he uses the phrase, the Lord of hosts, because oftentimes I think when I hear that phrase now, thanks to Isaiah, when we studied Isaiah deeply, I, I saw that phrase repeatedly. And I think he's trying to say, this is not just me. There are a host of angels on your side. He is the Lord of hosts, meaning there are multitudes of people who are on this team. And when you choose to join, all of those people rally for you. Not just your own ancestors, but this web of people who are disciples of Christ, who are just, you know, all of a sudden you are surrounded on the right hand and on the left. That's his promise. He is the Lord of hosts and you'll, he'll never be outnumbered. I also love what you see in 16 and 17. I have put my words in thy mouth. I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand that I might plant that, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, behold, thou art my people. And then in 17, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. When you know who you are, when you know about the covenants and the promises and the way you are tethered to a source that is infinite in its power and scope, you can awake 
you can stand up. In fact, I found myself researching what it means to awake. Because I don't think it just means to like, you know, snap out of it. I think that's the very first stage. But this idea of awaking and arising and stepping forth. In fact, later we're going to hear about him referencing garments, like putting on this sacred holy clothing so that you can step into who you really are. I just started researching it and digging it. One of my favorite explanations about what it means to really be awake came from Elder Pearson. I love his writings. This is one from his 2015 talk. He says, we stay because we are converted unto the Lord. Almatot, behold, he changed their hearts and yet he awakened them out of a deep sleep and they awoke unto God. As we yield our hearts to God, the Holy Ghost changes our very natures. We become deeply converted unto the Lord, and we no longer seek the spacious building. If we stop doing those things that bring about deepening conversion, we regress spiritually. Apostasy is the reverse of conversion. True disciples continue to awaken unto God each day in meaningful personal prayer, earnest scripture study, and personal obedience, personal obedience and selfless service. Stay by the tree. Stay awake. I love this because I feel like the world teaches us to seek out comfort, you know, not an Isaiah kind of comfort that's like a really good coach, but the comfort of the world, meaning things that will numb you from all the hard, things that will help you forget why you're here, things that will cushion you. The world teaches you that you need those things. You need to buy them. You need to acquire them as fast as possible so that you can be safe and comfortable. And that's not the gospel, you guys. His gospel is one of being awake. He wants you fully aware of all of your choices so that you can choose the one that will lead to joy. You simply can't experience a fullness of joy if your body is numb. You know, if you've become sort of anesthetized by the ways of the world, you can't feel a deep and abiding joy. So the only way you can get us to feel that sense of true joy is to be fully alert. (laughs) To me, being awake means being converted and choosing that every day I'm going to step up and I'm going to do those small and simple things that will keep my conversion thriving, that will make me feel and experience everything this world is supposed to give me so that I can progress forward. You see it a little further as you go deeper in the verses. This is 24 and 25. He says, awake, put on, awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I know it seems kind of weird to say that we should arise and then sit down, but to me, this is like this beautiful imagery of, remember what we heard from Elder Bednar about putting on those wedding garments? You know, this idea of choosing to live up to the privileges that are in front of you, choosing to put that on and then sit down at this feast of good things. Come to the table and feast on what the Lord is offering you. I just think that's his his invitation. I also love that he says, shake off the dust. You know, like I asked you guys in the questions last week, dust to me is the mortal natural man version of yourself. And so when he asks you to shake off the dust, it's like, get out of what the world is telling you you are. They think so small and look at yourself in my way. My way will always be bigger and it will always involve you feeling all of it. You you can't be numb. You can't be apathetic. You've got to be fully awake fully converted. And if you do that, miracles can flow. I call spark number four, the prodigal heart, because I think there is such lovely parallels between the prodigal son story parable and what you see in Jacob's sermon in nine. This is Jacob's opus on the atonement. I mean, it's just this 
rich, deep doctrine that is also so easy to comprehend and understand. And it's beautiful. So it's almost like he's taking that stepping stone that he placed with Isaiah's writings and he's advancing it one step further saying, let me teach you what I know about why we need a redeemer. So it starts in one, this is second Nephi nine verses one through three. And he says this, and now my beloved brethren, I have read these things, meaning the words of Isaiah, that you might know concerning the covenants of the Lord, that he has covenanted with all the house of Israel. Thus he has spoken unto the Jews by the mouth of his holy prophets, even from the beginning down generation to generation until the time comes that they shall be restored to the true church and fold of God. They shall be gathered from their home to the lands of their inheritance, and they shall be established in their lands of promise. And then this is verse three, behold, my beloved brethren, I speak unto you these things that ye may rejoice and lift up your heads forever because of the blessings which the Lord God shall bestow upon your children. I found myself wondering, why does he send prophets at every age? Why can't he just send them right before a new dispensation? <laughs> you know, because there's so many in the Old Testament who get rejected, stoned, murdered, even like they are. Why does he continually send messages? And you know, what came to me, you guys, it was that talk from president or elder Ugdorf, where he was speaking about the prodigal's dad, you know, and waiting by the window and hoping that his son will come. And I found myself thinking like, if that dad knew where his son was staying, you know, whatever city he was in or whatever friends he was living with when he was living his high life, I think that dad would have sent a letter every day. <laughs> I don't think he just sat by the window. I think he perpetually reached out the same way all of us who have loved ones who are wandering continually reach out. We continually invite, we extend love in any possible way we can. That's what I think the Lord did with the children of Israel. That's why he continued to send them prophets despite their continued rejection of him because he loves them, you guys, and he never gives up hope. In fact, he knows that they will circle back eventually and he wants each and every generation, no matter where they are in time, to know that he is there and that he loves them. And that to me was so powerful. Because what he promises, in fact, what Jacob teaches is not just that these people will be restored, but they will be restored, they will be gathered, and they will be established. To me, that is exactly what happens with this prodigal dad. When his son finally does come home, he doesn't treat him as a second-class son. He doesn't treat him as a servant like the son wanted. He gets the robe and the fatted calf, and he puts his arm around him, like he rushes to meet him, that's the love of a dad. He, his son's status as, as a son never changed, despite the rejection and the loss of funds and the betrayal that the dad must have felt. His, who his son was couldn't change. And I feel like that's, that's the same thing he feels for us. We, no matter where we go or how far we wander, we are his. And the moment we decide to come home, there will be a robe and a ring and a fat cap. I just loved it. If you want to go back and read Elder Uchtdorf's words, I, I clipped a few of them to share with you. I love the way he phrased it. He said, who among us has not departed from the path of holiness, foolishly thinking we could find more happiness going our own self-centered way? Who among us has not felt humbled, brokenhearted, and desperate for forgiveness and mercy? Perhaps some may even have wondered, is it possible to go back? Will I be labeled forever, rejected, and avoided by my former friends? Is it better just to stay lost? How will God react if I try to return? The parable gives us the answer. 
our Heavenly Father will run to us, his heart overflowing with love and compassion. He will embrace us, place a robe around our shoulders, a ring on our finger, and sandals on our feet, and proclaim, today we celebrate, for my child who was once dead has come back to life. Heaven will rejoice at our return. That's what it feels like to be restored. How can something that is so broken and so distant be restored and established? The missing piece that we're going to need to help us understand how to bridge that mighty gap comes in the rest of this chapter as we go into the infinite atonement. So let's go there next. One of Jacob's most powerful teachings in this week's study is about the gift of the infinite atonement, that because of what Christ did for us, we have the power to conquer death and hell. So his first focus will be on death. That's in like the first half of chapter nine. You're going to see him teach the people about their inevitable end. This idea of Without the gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ, all of us end in dust. In fact, I call this spark learning from Legos because that's what my mind kept thinking of. You know, the way my boys love Lego sets, we've got a bajillion Lego sets. And every time I go to buy one, my brain thinks about the pile of Legos they will inevitably become. You know, at some point, somebody's going to knock that Hogwarts castle off the shelf and it's going to be this pile of Legos on the ground. Or maybe when they age out of their Avengers sets, I will be hauling a big pile of Legos to DI to give to someone. I can see that inevitably they end in destruction and sort of this box of chaos. And I just think that's sort of what Jacob sees on an eternal level. He sees that everything that is here in front of you has to die. There's a great, I think originally it came from Hugh Nibley, but I read it in Jack Welch's writings this week, but he talks about this, the entropy of the universe and that things are slowly breaking down. And the only thing that holds everything back together is this understanding about the atonement what it offers us. And a big piece of that comes with the resurrection. So if you look in six and seven, this is what he says. For as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection. And the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression. And because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of God. That's his first step. He's trying to help us understand why the fall occurred. Remember how I said we were going to build on those agency blocks? I think Jacob is trying to help us get a better grasp of what happened in the Garden of Eden. That basically where Adam and Eve were, they were at a terrestrial level in the Garden of Eden. They they needed to descend in order to experience all the things they needed to experience, the good and the bad, the, the light and the dark. They They needed to descend. In order to descend, they have to do something to offend God, basically. In order to be separated from God, there has to be a transgression in place. So that's kind of more about, that's more of the understanding that I gained as I studied Jacob's words, is that their transgression allowed them to descend. But there would be no point in them being at this telestial level where they can make mistakes and live in this gritty, hard world and learn and strengthen each other. And, you know, like when you read Adam and Eve's words about feeling joy in their posterity and rejoicing... What would be the point of all that if there wasn't a chance for resurrection? If they couldn't ever get back up again? You know, if they couldn't ever come back to that judgment scene and see their Savior again? What would be the point of all that? So they need a chance to be resurrected. That's, that's the justice and mercy of God. He provides a Redeemer so that they, their bodies can be resurrected. And they go back to that terrestrial level to face judgment. That's why I think when we talk about the second coming, that we talk about the earth being restored to its terrestrial level. It's a place where you can come back, where people are resurrected, where you have these chances to learn and to grow in a different way. I think that's what he's trying to help us understand is we needed that gift. And it can't just be 
a partial gift. It must be infinite. So we look in verse 7 that says, Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement. This corruption could not put on incorruption. Things that are broken down can't last forever. Legos that are in pieces can't be built again without this infinite atonement. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon men must needs have remained in an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth and to rise no more. The inevitable end result of all things here in, in this telestial level without the atonement is crumbling. We all break down again. And that's what I think they're trying to help us understand. That's what Jacob wants to get across. That's how much we need the atonement. Remember we've talked about if you don't understand the fall, then you won't understand the need for the atonement. When you realize that there is no other way to get back to that place, there is no other way to ascend, then you realize how much we need his gift. There's this beautiful talk from Elder Johnson. I've mentioned it in the past, maybe a couple of years ago, but he talks about his daughter's cancer battle, that she eventually loses that battle and she passes away. And he has this sweet talk about resurrection and this gift that he gives. I only have a portion of it here. I hope we go back and find it. It's in the notes if you want to read the full thing, but it says, each of us has physical, mental, and emotional limitations and weaknesses. These challenges, some of which seem so intractable now, will eventually be resolved. None of these problem problems will plague us after we are resurrected. Elisa researched survival rates for persons with the type of cancer she had, and the numbers were not encouraging. She wrote, but there is a cure, so I'm not scared. Jesus has already cured my cancer and yours. I will be better, and I'm glad I know this. We can replace the word cancer with any of our other physical, mental, or emotional ailments that we might face. Because of the resurrection, they have already been cured too. The miracle of resurrection, the ultimate cure, is beyond the power of modern medicine, but it is not beyond the power of God. We know it can be done because the Savior is resurrected and will bring to pass the resurrection of each of us too. That's the gift, and that's what I hope, I think Jacob's trying to get across to us is, you don't need to be afraid. No matter what your physical body is experiencing or the loved ones you watch experience hard, all of those things have been cured and you will be risen. All of those blocks will come back together again and you will stay intact. And that's a beautiful promise. Spark number six, I call spiritual merit badges. Because recently I've been studying Elder Sabin's talk in a lot more depth. You know, the one where he talks about his son who was trying to get a merit badge for archery and he's got these physical ailments that make it virtually impossible for him to shoot like the other boys shoot. And Elder Saban talked about how when his son came back, he was so overjoyed to see that his son had earned a merit badge. In fact, the son was lighting up because he'd hit a bullseye. And he says, it was on the, the target next to mine, but I got a bullseye. And I just, something about that opened up my heart to these verses this week. I just think one of the sweetest things Jacob teaches is that you get rewards for trying, <laughs> for the desires of your heart. He also talks about how the atonement covers everything you don't know and don't understand. You know, th this applies to things like infant baptism and you know, those who have mental disabilities or whatever, whatever your situation is, you are only held accountable to what you understand and know. Because I think Heavenly Father always sees weakness differently than he sees rebellion. He knows we have weaknesses. He knows we have insufficiencies in our knowledge. So we make dumb choices sometimes. And he understands that. And so often in scripture, he talks about the desires of our hearts. I love the way it's phrased in chapter nine. This is 25 through 27 or so. It says, wherefore, he has given a law, 
Wherefore, there is no law given. Sorry, where there is no law given, there is no punishment. And where there is no punishment, there is no condemnation. And where there is no condemnation, the mercies of the Holy One of Israel have claim upon them. Because of the atonement, they are delivered by the power of him. He's basically saying, if you didn't know the laws, he's not going to hold you accountable for them. He's not going to condemn you for not keeping commandments you didn't know. Which is why I think our work of teaching people and bringing people to an understanding of the covenants and the promises is so pivotal because he wants everyone to have all the choices clearly in front of them. Remember when we were teaching in the Doctrine and Covenants about section 76, we compared it to the prices, right? And that idea of like section 76 is basically like throwing open all those bays and saying, here's all the prizes, which one do you want? That's kind of what I feel like he does with Joseph Smith. And it's what Jacob is doing here too. He's saying, if you couldn't see behind the doors, you're not accountable for that. He will make sure that you have as much light and knowledge as you can. And if you live this mortal life and you don't get that light and knowledge, the atonement will cover you. Isn't that just a beautiful doctrine? It's kind of unique to our faith, but it is such a, an incredible component of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It, it gets even deeper as you go into 26 and 27. For the atonement satisfieth the demands of justice upon all those who have not the law given to them. They, that they are delivered from the awful monster death and hell and the devil and the lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. And they are restored to that God, which gave them breath, which is the Holy One of Israel. But woe unto him that has the law given, yea, that has all the commandments of God like unto us, that transgresseth them and wasteth the days of his probation, for awful is his state. To me, this is his warning to say, if you do know what is true, and if you do have light and knowledge, act on it. That's why you are here. In fact, I've started to read those phrases. President Nelson often will say things like, the very air you breathe is a gift from God. I think it's Elder Saban who talked about how he always prays. He's so grateful that he has lungs that work because of watching his kids struggle. And I just think there's something about that in that probationary state. This is not just a time to repent and come to know God. It is this, it is this space he's given you. He is holding your body together. He is allowing you time and breath and a heart that beats so that you can come close to him. It's almost as if you can see his hands holding back that Red Sea around your life, that entropy and chaos that the universe is trying to happen, trying to create for you. And he's saying, nope, I'm giving you space. The probationary state phrase is what sparked for me, probably because of an experience I had this week. So I'm writing an article for LDS Living. I'm at the very early stages and I, this is fairly new ground for me. So I'm trying to figure this out. And what I loved is I was reading the kind of rubric of guidance that they gave me. And what the editor recommended is take this first draft and just make it messy. You know, like she basically said, it's not going to be pretty. Just send it to me. Take this space and do as much as you can to get your thoughts out. Get the arc there, get the flow, get the feel. Don't worry about the little things. And I gotta tell you guys, it totally changed my writing process because I knew that that's what she was expecting me to send her. I felt so much freedom to just write. You know, I didn't worry about every comma being in the right place or getting my quotes exactly correct. Like I just, I just got the flow out. And because I knew she was gonna be this gracious editor who expected a rough draft, I wasn't afraid. That's how I feel about the probationary state, you guys. I feel like the Savior is basically saying, this mortal experience is your rough draft. It's going to be messy. You're going to make mistakes. Just come to me. Don't be afraid of your imperfections. Come to me and let me help you place those commas. Let me help you put the quotes in exactly the right spot and format things right. Just get the flow. Which is why I think it's so beautiful that he repeatedly teaches us about the desires of your hearts. I think what the editor can see in me is, 
what's the desire of Maria's heart when she wrote this? <laughs> what is she trying to say and how can I help her do it better? I think that's what the Savior does with his atonement. It doesn't just offer us resurrection and an, a body that can stay intact forever. It also offers us a chance to make mistakes and to learn and to grow and take risks and, you know, advance on in this earth life. And that, I think, is just a remarkable gift. I love the way Elder Maxwell says this. This is from 96. He says, Therefore, what we insistently desire over time is what we will eventually become and what we will receive in eternity. Kind of sounds like President Oaks and even President Nelson. For I, said the, for I, said the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. <laughs> I know that God granteth unto men according to their desire. I know that he allotteth unto men according to their wills. To reach this equitable end, God's canopy of mercy is stretched out, including all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of the gospel, who would have received it with all their hearts and the heirs of the kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. This is my favorite part. God thus takes into merciful account not only our desires and our performance, but also the degrees of difficulty which our varied circumstances impose on us. No wonder we will not complain at the final judgment, especially since even the celestial kingdom's glory surpasses all understanding. God delights in blessing us, especially when we realize joy in that which we have desired. Don't you just love that addition to the atonement that Jacob teaches, that Elder Maxwell teaches, that so many others in scripture have taught? He is not looking at where that arrow lands. He is looking at what did you try to do? What was the desire of your heart when you let that arrow fly? And no matter what target it hits, whether it's the one you expected or another, you will make a connection and he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's his promise. Spark number seven, I call a portal to power because that's how I visualize it. But let me tell you some context about why. This week, because my institute class, I'm teaching the foundations of the restoration. So this week's lesson was all about Keystone, what the Book of Mormon offers as this Keystone, just like what we talked about a few weeks ago. And what I liked is we were sketching it out right on the on the blackboard. And I was talking about those same things I talked to you about, that each of those stones, because they're part of this arch, now has purpose and power and permanence. And we started to talk about what that keystone offered. What I like is what I added to that in my study of Jacob's words. I didn't get it in when I was teaching the YSAs, but it, that visual of that keystone on the blackboard came back to me as I was studying. This is what you see in the verses. So this is chapter nine, verse 39 and 41. It says, oh, my beloved brethren, remember the awfulness in transgressing against that holy God and also the awfulness of yielding to the enticings of the cunning one. Remember to be carnally minded is death and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Oh, then my beloved brethren, come unto the Lord, the Holy One. Remember that his paths are righteous. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel. And he employeth no servant there. And there is none other way, save it be by the gate, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. What I started to think about when I was picturing that keystone on the chalkboard is how much weight is above it. You know, if you've ever seen like... Um, those drawings of the ancient city of Jerusalem, that they've got these kind of keystone arches in certain places along those walls. And up above those arches are thousands upon thousands of pounds of pressure pushing down. You know, because each of those blocks was multiple thousands of pounds. And that's why it's so amazing that the Romans were able to get all of them completely broken down because they're huge. And what I loved about this visual is I started to appreciate the power of that portal that is created. This archway with that keystone on top where the Savior stands 
You know, he doesn't have any servants there. It is this, he is holding back everything else so that you can pass through. He is holding up all that pressure and all that weight so that you have this open entry to the joy he wants for you. Something about visualizing that portal was powerful to me. I just thought, what a sweet offering this is. You can almost feel the weight of it on his shoulders as he creates this archway for you to pass through. What I love is he doesn't ask much of us in return. What he does is he asks that we can fit. (laughs) I think what he's trying to say is you're going to just set down what doesn't fit. That's why I love this description of it being a narrow opening, this gateway. You know, it's not so much a gate like an iron gate as much as it's an opening. And it never closes. Remember, we learned that from John in Revelation. They are open all the time, but you have to fit through them. And in order to fit through those narrow openings, you have to shed some things. You know, we have to set down the natural man. We have to set down our weaknesses and our, you know, struggles and our sins. All those things have to be cast off before we can fit in that portal. (laughs) And something about that just helped me. Uh, When you look a little further, he talks about some of the things you might need to shed. So if you look in 42, and whoso knocketh, to him will he open. And the wise and the learned and they that are rich, who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they, they are they whom he despiseth. And they save they shall cast these things away and consider themselves fools before God and come down in the depths of humility. He will not open unto them. This is him just trying to be really clear. Like you can't carry any of that in with you. You have to, you know, you, you have to be able to shed all of that weight and come with this posture of childlike humility to realize how much you need him in order to proceed through. And so then you get this invitation from Jacob from 50 to 52 that I can't summarize. I, I, I just think it's worth it to read. So, come, my brethren, and everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore, do not spend money for that which is of no worth, nor your labor for that which cannot satisfy. Hearken diligently unto me, and remember the words which I have spoken, and come unto the Holy One of Israel, and feast upon that which perisheth not, neither can be corrupted, and let your soul delight in fatness. This is Jacob's invitation to feast on what can fit through that portal. You know, he's saying you can set all that extra stuff down. You don't need it anymore. You won't find joy there, but you can delight in the things that will last. And when you think about the things that last in our world, you know, our relationships, our families, our testimonies, he wants you to delight in the fatness of those things and then let everything else go. It's just this invitation to come joyfully through his gate. And I love the way Jacob phrases it. Time for the question side of week eight. Okay, guys, my hope here is just to prompt ideas in your head and get you to open up your scriptures and see what the Spirit teaches you. Then, of course, if you come up with an answer, if you have something in mind already, I hope you'll share it. Put it in the comments thread if you want or on the discussion boards on the course or better yet, just talk to somebody in your sphere. Bring it up in the classes that you're in or talk to somebody on your way to work and see about what their thoughts are. I just think it's a way for us to dive into our scriptures in a lot of different ways. Okay, so here's my five questions. The first one comes from 2 Nephi chapter 6. This is when he's talking about the gathering, and he's talking about what the gathering will look like. It says, And now these are the words, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. It's this rich visual that I just think teaches us so much about this gathering work. In my mind, I always think about this with like, 
a firefighter, you know, almost like what you picture on the cover of Time magazine after a you know, natural disaster of some kind, that you'd see some emergency responder carrying someone out of the flames. And inevitably what you see is the strain of it. You know, that's what makes those photos so gripping is because you see the danger behind them. You see the soot and the ash that they're covered in. You, you see the worry on their face. You, you see the, the contrast and that grips you. And I just feel like there's a reason this is such a beautiful metaphor for missionary work. <laughs> and I guess that's my question to you is, as you think about this idea of carrying sons and daughters on your shoulders, hefting things and bringing them out of danger towards safety, especially the safety of Zion, where do you see connecting points between that and missionary work? Why does that metaphor work so beautifully? And maybe if you want to talk to your classes or your families, think about a time when you've seen missionary work do this in your life where you've seen someone spiritually carried to truth and what did that look like? Okay, question number two. This actually isn't a direct quote from scripture, but it comes from commentary I read about scripture. And this is from President Nelson. He was talking about the gathering. This is way back, 2014, you guys. He's been talking about the gathering forever <laughs> because that's the mind of an apostle of God, right? This is what they're focused on. And he says this, a loving but grieving father scattered Israel far and wide, but he promised that one day scattered Israel would be gathered back into the fold. This promise was just as emphatic as the promise of the scattering of Israel. Isaiah, for example, foresaw that in the latter days, the Lord would send swift messengers to these people who were scattered and peeled. My question is, I thought his word choice was particularly interesting. When he says, a loving but grieving father scattered Israel far and wide with this understanding of a promise that one day they would be gathered back in. I guess I wonder how you can relate to that. What experiences in your life have you seen where you had to scatter something? Obviously not in the same way, but where do you see love and pain in that choice? Especially when it comes to the scattering of his chosen people, where do you see these emotions? How do you see him loving and grieving? And where do you see that connecting with your life? So that's my, first, my second question. Third question. This one comes from chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is when Isaiah is teaching about, look unto the rock from whence you are hewn. One of the things I love about the way Jacob teaches it and Isaiah teaches it is they use both Abraham and Sarah in those verses. He says, you know, look back to Abraham, look back to Sarah from which you are born. I can't remember how he said it. Like she, they together represent this covenant, which I just love in particular. But I guess my question is, what do you think that verse means? I, there's some obvious answers that come to mind first, but I think we can take it a few levels deeper, or maybe the obvious answers are the right answer. I'm just kind of curious about what you think it means. What is the rock that you're hewn from? Who's doing the hewing? And what is the end result as you're being carved out? What, what does that refer to? I have some thoughts, but I'm anxious to hear yours. Okay, question number four. This one comes from chapter eight as well. This is in those first couple verses, but I think it's, oh, sorry. I take it back. This is nine, verse 18. So it says, but behold, the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed in the Holy One of Israel and they who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world and their joy shall be full forever. There's this interesting connection between those who endure the crosses of the world, the suffering and the strain, in a type and a shadow of the Savior himself, those who endure those things, experiencing a, a richness and a fullness of joy. You can go in the notes and you can learn more. President Iring has, I think it was a BYU devotional. This is back in 2008. You can go find the full quote in the notes. But 
He says trials are necessary for us to be shaped and made fit to receive that happiness that comes as we qualify for the greatest of all the gifts of God. I thought his word choice was so interesting, kind of like President Nelson's word choice, that he says the trials actually shape us so that we can hold the joy. And I want to know what that means, you guys. Where do you see that connecting with Jacob's words, Isaiah's words, and President Eyring? Where do you see adversity shaping you so that you can hold joy? I don't entirely know what that means, but I have some thoughts and I'm hoping to hear yours. Okay, last one. This comes from 2 Nephi 9, verse 50. We just read this at the end of the insights, but he says, Come, my brethren, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. I think it's really interesting that what he says in this verse is not, you don't have to have money, come and eat. What he says is come and buy. Even if you don't have wealth, come and buy. And I wondered why. I, I think it's an interesting word choice. And I started digging and pulling back some layers to try and understand what relief he's really offering here. And I'm curious what you think. Why does it say buy and not just eat or drink? Why is he giving them the opportunity to purchase something? And then maybe by extension, what other nourishment might he be offering? something beyond what is obvious. When he says, I'm going to allow you to buy without money, what other nourishment is he giving them spiritually? I, I would love to hear your thoughts. I think there's a lot we could discuss on just that question. Okay, go study, seek out answers, and then come back and share what you learn. Before we head into the creative, I just wanted to wrap up with a thought. I think Maybe one of the reasons Jacob chose to focus here, one of the reasons Nephi thought this study of Isaiah would help assuage their feelings of isolation or fear or being cut off from these great promises, is that that's what the understanding the atonement of Jesus Christ offers. To each of us, he can succor us. You know, He is someone who has been through every struggle, every combination of struggles, every adversity. He knows all of them. So anyone that's struggling with those feelings of being left alone can find comfort and solace by studying the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is the ultimate answer that fills all gaps. And I, I learned and felt so much this week as I studied Jacob's writings. I hope you will too. I, I, I felt the same, well, at least when I heard Jacob talk about the greatness of God's plan, I could almost picture the joy in his face. Maybe because we've seen it in President Nelson's eyes, you know, when he talks about God's plan being fabulous and his eyes light up. That's how I picture Jacob. I think what he wants us to understand is that this, this plan was mapped out long ago, and it has every possible opportunity for you to find joy. No matter where you are and how, how much, how big that gap seems, the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ can fill that gap, and it will do it beautifully. And I hope you find that in the verses this week as well.